welcome back to our Hellraiser Retrospect. I'm David Smith, and once again I'm joined by my fellow Cenobites, Mr. Alistair Yule and Jim Lamming. Say hi, guys. Hello. Hello. And tonight we're going to be discussing two very different movies indeed. Hellraiser's Parts 4 and 5, a.k.a. Bloodline and Inferno. Proof that there's no one template for what makes a Hellraiser flick. But before we take this journey from inner space to outer space, or from outer space to inner space, I should say, let's talk about what else we've been watching. Jim, what have you been watching? Last week... I went to see a Neon Genesis Evangelion double bill at the cinema. I don't know whether it was an anniversary or what. It just appeared there in the listings. So I thought I would, you know, might as well go for it. A lot of the internet seemed to be quite keen on it. So I thought I'd give it a go. Now, I have watched the original series on Netflix over the course of the last however long it's been added on there. And for the most part, I did enjoy it. But a lot of it, I did find it a bit of a struggle. It wasn't quite as action-packed as you'd expect, considering it's, uh, you know, to generalize, it's a TV show about mechs fighting aliens uh, uh, to some degree. But uh, the, the two films were Deaf brackets true squared uh which was basically a a re-edit of the tv shows packed into a 70 minute odd film and the way it worked was really good i mean it was basically flash edits you know one after another you know each each scene frame was barely a few seconds for each moment and the way it was put together was incredible although if you've not seen the tv show i'd imagine you'd have been completely lost but it it was quite a wonderful experience to see an animated film like that on on the big screen a a lot of anime just manages to have a massive sense of scale to it anyway the way they design the backgrounds the the characters just even the little details on there just always pop out especially when you see them at the cinema so something like this was really good to see and the uh, following film was the end of evangelion which is basically a a a redux of the last two episodes of the tv show uh now the tv show was basically uh, an introspective look at the way the characters deal with what they've had to go through and what they've done throughout the entire series. So it did get quite bleak at times, whereas they've completely changed it up here. They've basically carried on from, I think it was episode 24, uh, which is the climactic battle for the TV show, but then threw in a lot more battles. So the weird government entity that was running the whole thing decided to turn against this branch of them that was basically saving the world um so the first half of that is the, the big fights it's called quite impressive we we're going on lots of you know mechs fighting big monsters and so on and the second half i don't feel i had enough narcotics or drink to fully appreciate but it was a <laughs> massive psychedelic existential crisis basically it all the young folks uh, in the audience love it um yeah, I think there was a few dads sat there with their like late teenage sons, probably thinking, "What the fuck is he dragging me along to?" <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and uh, I mean, I don't want to go into it too much because it is something that probably needs to be experienced more than anything. But um, anime does have a bit of a reputation for being cartoons for perverts, 
And this doesn't help it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and did you see anything else that wasn't a bit perfect? I finally caught Dune, the Benny Villeneuve's vision. Were we right? Did you fucking love it? I would say so, yeah. No, at first I was like, yeah, I really enjoyed that, but I don't know if I liked it better than, uh, say, Lynch's version. But then I was writing my letterboxed review of it, and I just was writing and writing and writing, and I thought, well, actually, if it's making me come up with all of this, then it must have had an effect on me. And yeah, sleeping on it, I couldn't stop thinking about it. it it was so good. And I mean, that fucking soundtrack, the aesthetic, it's got so much yeah, going yeah. for it. Uh, one thing that did occur to me was if I hadn't have seen the previous film, I'm not sure I would have had much of a clue of what the hell was going on at the time. A lot of the story cues seem to be more visual representation than actually explained in some of the dialogue and so on. And I, I, I don't want my hand holding while I'm watching a film. But I did think I would have probably got a bit lost there if I didn't know the story to begin with. I mean, I'd say I didn't see the Lynch one for about 15 years when I watched this one. And I would say some of the intricacies, like the relationships between the different factions, at the beginning you're a bit like, whoa, what the hell is that about? The thing is, you you got the significance of them to the characters, even if you didn't really get the rich history of centuries yeah so i, I didn't think that's an issue personally no i mean as i say it, it wasn't a bother for myself i just looking back on it, I, I do feel like a lot of it was left open to interpretation or left in visual cues on the screen rather than a lot of it discussed you know in dialogue character interactions that sort of thing but overall absolutely incredible loved it i love seeing that kind of film in the cinema that's absolutely breathtaking and awe-inspiring. Um, which then takes me on to my next film, which I saw the following day, I believe, which was actually Spencer, the film about Princess Di. Oh, this is one of uh, Kristen Stewart's in it, isn't it? No, sorry. Yeah, that's, that's right, Kristen yeah, Stewart. That's yeah. correct. Uh, I was confused with Kristen Di. Yeah, so that was okay. Uh, like the, the aesthetic was fantastic. Now, it's set in late 80s, early 90s. It doesn't specify what year it is, but it's set over Christmas Eve through Boxing Day. And the reason I'm mentioning it is because the style is very reminiscent of that 70s, 80s old horror vibe. Uh, I really got The Shining, The Omen, even the others that just really felt like that. And Johnny Greenwood's score was really, really unsettling and unnerving throughout. Like the film deals with a lot of issues from uh, eating disorder to feeling trapped in this role she's been assigned, always having a life dictated. And it feeds into that kind of horror vibe. But unfortunately, for me, I feel like it just didn't stick with it and it ended up going back to just familial drama more than anything. So while it did have this great undercurrent of dread and general horror, it just didn't really follow it through for me. That's really interesting, because I know the film's about Princess Diana, um, so I, I didn't really <laughs> assume it would be so tense. Well, what attracted me to it was the, the look. It looks like it was filmed back when it's set. Like, obviously, everything's digital these days, but you know, in post, they've obviously added a filter to it, which makes it look really grainy and has that late 80s, I guess, British. Like it, you would 
think it was all the same crew that maybe shot Hellraiser, for example. It's got that kind of look to it. But it's set in uh, Sandringham's big empty estate where she's basically isolated, feels trapped. Like the, the subtext is, well, I'd just call it text, to be fair. <laughs> um, it's very unsubtle in places. But yeah, it is implied that she's a prisoner and she's basically living her own horror story at this point. So it wasn't quite what I was expecting. And I think a lot of people, you know, especially royalists, would be very disappointed going to watch that film. But yeah, like just I just thought I'd mention it, and I've probably gone on a bit longer than I should have done about it anyway. I just thought I'd mention it in like the whole vibe. It's really creepy atmosphere. It's it's really cool, but you know, it doesn't stick the landing. And uh, lastly, I believe you took one from the team and watched, watched the Eternals, didn't you? <laughs> I wouldn't exactly call it taking one from the team. <laughs> It's uh, it was surprisingly good. This was probably I'm I'm a fan of the Marvel films. I've enjoyed them since day one. I mean, I grew up watching the Marvel action hour with the likes of Iron Man and Fantastic Four, etc. So I've always been into it. But uh, yeah, Eternals is one I've never really known much about, and I was probably quite ambivalent towards it. But it turned out to be a great film. Probably the most introspective Marvel film we've had yet. Uh, a lot of it is a lot of self-reflection, pondering. And to be fair, it feels like the, the, the threat, the antagonist is just there to have one rather than, you know, there being a, a, a proper peril, I suppose. A lot of it is these characters reflecting on their time that they've had on Earth, uh, what they've done, their actions, and what they should do going forward. And it was surprisingly deep <laughs> considering it's Marvel. I mean, I know we, we have had some moments of reflection from the other characters at times, but this feels like it, it actually just stops to deal with that rather than, yeah, here's a fun bit of story. Let's fight a guy. We lose to the guy. We regroup. We go fight the guy and win. It, it just, this just felt a lot more, introspective uh, obviously there's plenty of action scenes it is a marvel film after all but yeah definitely probably the most contemplative marvel film we've had yet the thing that put me off was i went whoa we're introducing 12 new characters <laughs> in this. they've not had origin films yet but at the same time maybe i'll give this a shot with my cine world unlimited so guys i'll tell you what i've been watching lately I watched Last Night in Soho, which I think is brilliant. It's good because it both celebrates and also kind of subverts our romantic ideas about the swinging 60s. Like it begins as a kind of love letter to a bygone era before eventually becoming a really dark, jalo style film. Now, once the scares start, once the intensity begins, it doesn't let off. Like, this just spirals and spirals until a really cool ending. Now, some plot points did annoy me. The lead character just has visions, and it's not really explained. Other people just take it as something that happens with her. We never really know what the what sort of visions these are, how immersive they are. And yet, despite having these visions, it takes her like half the film before she wonders if the dreams she's having are just dreams or not. So it does mean that as an audience, we're kind of waiting somewhere in the middle of Act 2 while she's still wandering around aimlessly in Act 1. Yet once it catches up, I loved it. It's really well acted. It looks amazing. There's lots of London porn for people who want to see their favourite locations. 
and with such a good final turn from Dame Diana Rigg. And of course, anything Nathaniel Taylor-Joy pleases me. And then, I've been watching the I Know What You Did Last Summer TV series. Slasher films generally don't work on TV, or slasher narratives, I should say, don't really work on TV. The reason for this being that you've got to be able to surprise viewers by having deaths every so often, but drama shows tend to have recurring characters. And to be fair, this is a lot better than Scream. There's a lot less of a sense that these characters have plot armour, that they're going to be invincible till the finale. It's also quite an interesting core dilemma for the leading character as well. I'm not going to say what that dilemma is, because it's a huge spoiler for something that happens early on in the show. But... It's kept my interest. I'm at episode 5 now out of 8, and though the core cast do seem a little bit too safe, the mystery element is relatively well done. It's keeping me guessing who the killer is going to be and where it's all going. So, that's all good. Alistair, what have you been watching lately? Well, like you, I've been watching I Know What You Did Last Summer. Mm -hmm. Unlike you, it was not the TV show. It was the movies. Ah. So... I went through films one, two, and three, and uh, I remember seeing them when I was younger. I thought I'd revisit them, revisit the series to see, refresh myself to see what it was all about. And um, yeah, I found it to be quite the the TD bopper, death by numbers sort of picture, <laughs> which takes a very interesting turn with the third film in that it, it sort of does uh, what I suppose the boy franchise does, where there's a premise and a setup in the first film and the sequel completely ignores that. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's where the first film, it's a psychologically disturbed individual doing the crimes. In the second boy film, it's a possessed doll. <laughs> so obviously, why I know what you did last summer, the first two are sort of, they're almost like your screen flicks where the killer is one of the main cast and he's uh, got a bone to pick with our heroine Jennifer Love Hewitt. Third film, it's a ghost. Completely randomly, they decided to go with a ghost of the third film, which admittedly, it kind of makes sense if they had actually decided to do that from the beginning. Because I know what you did last summer, someone knows they killed a guy, could be the ghost coming back to do it. And the way the guy in the sort of wet, slicker outfit keeps appearing here and there and everywhere, almost omnisciently knowing what the heroes are doing... Um, that sort of thing a ghost would be quite adept at. <laughs> the villain for the first one, great. The second one, based on that whole trip to, I forget the island's name, it's out in the Bahamas, I think, and the whole setup makes no sense. Oh, like there are, there are easier ways to go about doing a crime you're you're making it more complicated for yourself, but hilariously, if the police ever catch up to you and you try and explain what this convoluted plan is, there's a chance they might just not believe you. Oh, <laughs> uh, fuck, yeah, I don't want to give the game away with the second one, but something that really amuses me is about how the killer's identity rests upon a pun as well. <laughs> the killer's even set <laughs> his own shit joke up in order to catch him. Good stuff. And did it make you quite fond of the first one, though? Because the first one tends to be seen as a slightly classier of the three films. It's a bit moodier, it's a bit more of an atmosphere, it's a really quite impressive cast you know, as well. It, it is, actually. But you're, you're trying to say, that's saying something along the lines of, right, you've had a bad experience, 
go have this worse experience that'll make you appreciate the previous bad experience. They're not great movies, I suppose. They're kind of cheaply made. And and the and I Know What You Did Last Summer are is exactly the type of movie that the Scream franchise was ripping on when those films were made. So it's a commentary in that section when those things happen. It's also, I think with those films, I was like a title of a movie and I was hoping for some sort of development where we had, I know what you did last summer. Then one year later, I still know what you did last summer, which technically should have been, I still know what you did the summer before last. And the, what was the third one again? They, they could have had real fun I'll with the title of that film. I always know what you did last summer. <laughs> that was it. That was it. And yeah, so the I like the way those titles progress because one gripe I think I have with Hollywood is the uh, the numbering, just simple numbering of films, which seems to be fading away now slightly with films reaching a point in their franchises and then they no longer start numbering them. Like Star Trek VI was the last one that had a number to it. And for instance, well, Hellraiser that we're about to talk about, four is the last numbered of that series. And that going forward, they've, they've just got the subtitles. But it's like if you get a book series and the sequels, you know, they never have numbers in books. So I don't know why films should. I mean, have faith in your audience. People remember. One last thing I want to mention to people is I want to recommend a book I was recently reading. That's right. Fucking horror cult books will be the new spin-off. Uh, that book is called Chasing the Boogeyman by Richard Chismar. This is an absolutely brilliant horror book. It's written as a, It's written like a true crime book. But from a memoir perspective, it's the author reflecting upon his early 20s, moving back to his hometown, and then there's the uh, murder of four girls in the local area. This is a really atmospheric, really haunting book. It's got some fantastic world building and just such a sense of location. I read this whole thing in about three sittings, so really strongly recommend it. Anyway, not necessarily so strongly recommended, Hellraiser's Part 4 and 5. Let's begin with Part 4, Hellraiser Bloodline. Centuries ago, a toy maker set out to build the perfect puzzle box. A gift that would bring enchantment to all who possessed it. He never dreamed that this simple toy was the key to the gates of hell. Do I look like someone who cares what God thinks? Hellraiser Bloodline. This is probably the single most ambitious film in the entire franchise. We have three different timelines here. It's a really good concept. This is the sort of thing I would want to do if I was given the Hellraiser rights. Yet at the same time, for all the lore we're getting... For all the plot we're getting, it's only 84 minutes. Apparently there exists a cut that's over two hours or something, right? I've heard of that, but I've not uh, obviously seen it myself. Uh, just for this uh, podcast, I've uh, revisited the theatrical cut, and I believe there were a lot of cuts in that particular cut. What did you make of the theatrical cut, Alistair? Are you a big fan? I enjoyed the film, despite itself. You know, it's definitely an ambitious film. 
and it has the sort of visuals and the music that goes with the original trilogy. It, it carries over quite well, and I believe this is the last of the cinematic Hellraisers, and it certainly feels it. There are a number of issues with the film. Certainly, editing is one of them, and I think I'm going to dive right in and say it's the scene with them. Um, you have this magician guy, the, the Monsieur de Lille. Uh, I will have to say, when I first watched this, I, I misheard his name. I thought it was Monsieur de Ville. As in devil, but no, it's Delil. So, um, although Delil, I mean, Hellraiser for you might as well. Monsieur Delil, who's this magician summoning the magic, he summons a demon, and he has this apprentice guy who's almost a redundant character because he doesn't last much longer than Monsieur Delil does. But he summons a demon, and at some point, there's been a coup where the apprentice has taken over and he's now in charge and Mr. Delisle strapped to a chair and barbed wire and not looking too good for himself. But we never see that happen. We never see the coup take place. We only follow the toy maker, Le Machant, walk into the chateau to find, you know, Monsieur Delisle in that state and the apprentice uh, join the company of uh, Angelique. But we never know what happened there. And that's one example of like a very hard cut mm. of like the connective tissues for those scenes. It's just not there. It's I know that you've also been reading the script that was recently uploaded as an ebook. And yep. I thought the original script was really good. Like there's points of this where you still have the same kind of bare bones approach to script writing where there's just enough dialogue to advance the plot. So we don't necessarily get a feel for the protagonists. At the same time, there's a lot more world building going on in the script, and we get things like that. The big events that happen off screen, we see, and they sound really elaborate as well at points. So I think the script was hugely better than what we ended up getting here. This mm-hmm. kind of really scrappy, really messy movie that I just don't think tells its story very well. The script is better. I will give it that. It's certainly more fleshed out. And I think when you're telling a story in three different timelines, that Technically, it's sort of three different worlds you're having to build there. The, if you consider the audience like a skimming stone just touching across the surface of the water of the, the world that exists. I was going to mention about some of the dialogue and what the original intention was and how that didn't quite translate to the finished product because there was a whole bunch of characters that were deleted from the movie. And these were clowns. Yes, that's <laughs> yeah. They they appeared in the in the script in the eight in France in eighteenth century. Clowns appeared, and they worked for Angelique. And, and also, Angelique is a fully formed demon right from the very get go at the start of the the script. Whereas in the film, she's I think she's some prostitute that. Uh, Monsieur Delisle finds and then has her transformed into one. But with the there's a line from Pinhead, hell is more ordered since your time and much less amusing. That line was a reference to the clowns that were in the script. Uh, but of course, we have no clowns in the film. So that reference there is kind of lost. I'll tell you something that really fucks me off about that line as well, right? Pinhead says, hell's much more order than it was in your time. 
she left hell hundreds of years before he went to hell. So there's absolutely no way that Pinhead can comment on what hell was like before she left it. It's one of the examples of the timeline of this movie just making absolutely zero sense. Like, we also have the guy in the, the, uh, the, guy in the future in the space setting and f- talking about a story that happened 400 years ago involving one of his ancestors. The thing is, this story would have to be regaled by the wife because the guy dies in it. His wife is therefore reporting events that she herself was not present for. And that doesn't make any sense either. There's no way for her to know what's been happening in this chamber. There's no way for her to know what the wizard was saying, what the wizard was doing. And the thing is, in the original script, it makes sense because it's told chronologically. Whereas here, they're going, oh, it's like a Russian doll narrative of stories within stories. And here we have a story that happens 400 years ago that's being told by this guy in space who has no way of knowing it. Not least because his ancestor from 200 years ago had absolutely no understanding of his story. So how the fuck would he know 400 years later what was not told told between generations to an ancestor from 200 years prior? Ugh, annoys me. It, it's very Jaws 4 flashback <laughs> sequence when uh, the, the wife of Brody is remembering events that she was not present for. And, I mean, there's no scene of him telling his wife anything and then he dies before he does. Now, he does tell a character who's performing an autopsy and they have a little interesting scene. And that character as well had a much bigger role in the original script. Everything is just really truncated. I will say this, I think it's where the studio interference comes across. It's really obvious that they were wanting to speed the story up to get to Pinhead. They knew Pinhead was the draw and the biggest casualty of that is the 18th century France. The arrival of the box and how it came to be and one of the issues i think that a lot of horror franchises have is that your main draw is often your villains like your freddies your ghost face your mike myers the draw is the villain but they cannot be the center of the story so you wouldn't film a film following a shark around and call it jaws you need to have your human characters in there. And when they're trying to flesh out the screen time of the villains, it unbalances and offsets the story and can sometimes be a little detrimental to tension, which I think this film doesn't have that much of. Now, Jim, you're quite quiet there. You've never seen this film. Your first time popping your uh, Hellraiser 4 cherry. Were you a fan of this movie? Well, this is actually the second time I've watched it. However, the first time would have been probably its TV premiere back in the late 90s. Uh, I remember seeing it on the Sci-Fi channel, and the only thing I could really recall was the space station. Well, you know, it is quite memorable at the end. Um, but, you know, it's, oh God, well over 20 years later. <laughs> um, it, it, yeah, it's a Hellraiser film, but it doesn't feel like a Hellraiser film. Now, the underlining themes of the previous ones have all been finding the the, the peak of pleasure, lust, all, all that sort of thing. And that's just completely forgotten here. There's nothing like that. It all seems to be about summoning demons. Well, for, for the uh, beginning, at least, you know, you've got all that uh, bit set in France. Uh, but, it doesn't really go into 
too much detail as to why they're actually doing it, um, but they are. <laughs> then we go to, I guess, what would have been present day New York. And that's when we meet Pinhead. Uh, it was nice that they incorporated the building we see at the end of Hellraiser 3. That was a neat mm-hmm. little touch. Uh, I like what they did with that. But then we just get into this kind of battle of wills between Angelique and the Cenobites for some reason. Uh, like Surely they'd have the same MO. Uh, and then you've got this guy who you know is part of this long bloodline destined to put an end to the Cenobites. He's just caught in the middle. And so we get caught up with his familial woes and you know, night terrors, that sort of thing. And it just, yeah, it just didn't have what you had from the previous three films going for it. Now, it does allude to all of the, you know, sin and pleasure and all of that sort of thing. It, but it just feels like it's in there because it's, they've just realized, oh, shit, yeah, we're meant to have that in it and all. Um, so, you know, we'll throw that in for good measure. I'd sort of disagree with you, Peter, because the main themes, yeah, you've got Hooper's Jealousy Temptation, which are all quite Hellraiser. But I think what we had was a genuine attempt to try and build upon the established universe. I think the ideal was, well, part three was hell on earth. Now, how do we up the scale even further? Well, what mm. we do is we do this across centuries. The problem is they didn't have a budget to do this. So it's kind of go big or go home. You don't do this cheaply. I do kind of think I agree with Jim, actually, in the sense that with the pleasure and pain aspects of the Cenobites and their raison d'etre, it's not manifested in this film. There is a sequence where Angelique takes this man down to like an underground car park. And another link to three with the box being in stuck in the concrete punches a hole in the pillar to get the box out. And obviously she's exploit. She's a seducer. She's exploiting him. He gets dragged to hell, but it's very quick. It's, it's very bish bash bosh. And it does. It's not quite the same way the Cenobites delighted in their torturing of uh, Frank, for instance. It's, it's much more swiftly handled. It's like we got to get this out of the way to make the story push the story forward, or our story. And I'll finish off the point about the apprentice. He stands in Hell's way and gets killed. And he was so swiftly dispatched at the very start of the present day section, quote unquote present day section, that I almost wondered. What was the point in his character? Because <laughs> we could have done away with him altogether. We, that could have just been Delisle forgetting his own rule. And of course, uh, as we discussed, it's uh, 200 years later, and now Angelique decides to go after the Le Marchant family and continue the curse. Yeah, there's not standing in hell's way thing. I'm wondering how the fuck uh, this guy who was played by Adam Scott, who of course goes on to become famous for uh, Parks and Rec and uh, other things. I'm wondering how the hell he managed to survive for hundreds of years because they're not getting in hell's way thing. He falls into it. It's not even like a bit of Machiavellianism. She asks him a question, he says no. So she kills him and goes, you're standing in hell's way. We meant to believe that that hasn't happened before. Yeah, I assume a lot of that is what's got left on the cutting room floor. I was reading up on why it was an Alan Smithy film, and it does seem 
from what I was reading, there have been a few different versions of this, and each time the studio wanted it shorter. But uh, one thing I did notice, you know, it, these days you get a lot of people saying, you know, how ageless Paul Rudd is. But Jesus, Adam Scott in this looks no different <laughs> to how he did in Parks and Recreation. And that was, what, 1996? I mean, come yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> hey, to be fair, though, he did turn into a bit of a kind of interview the vampire-like figure, which is what I imagine they're trying to do a visual call to, going for the yeah, uh, long-haired yeah. goth, like, pre-emo-wage singer. I, I, <laughs> I did get that kind of vibe, and I assume, obviously, that Angelique being a demon has prolonged him as some sort of ward the person that would go out and do a shopping or whatever i don't know <laughs> let's talk about angelique for a moment conceptually i really liked her i liked the idea of pinhead having an opponent who in theory is kind of his equal but i think a real problem with their relationship in it is it's not clear from the movie that we see from the, from the cut we see why she betrays pinhead why she's trying to close hell it makes sense if you read the script it doesn't make sense from the version we watch. The character motivations just kind of fall apart during this version. And I just think it made for a quite unsatisfying midsection. Especially as he turns her into a Cenobite afterwards, but we don't really have much personal stakes. And that's sort of like the rest of the film. We have conceptual stakes, like, oh, the end of the world, people being twisted and turned into Cenobites. We don't really have any personal dramatic stakes. There's not really a whole lot of emotional motivations behind the film. You know, you've got, okay, well, we've got this curse with the family here. The family been fighting with Cenobites for hundreds of years. But at the same time, I challenge anyone to describe any of the three protagonists in three unique adjectives. Because I was talking it. You could like, oh, we're dedicated to their cause. We love their family. Ooh. You know, and that's roughly the strength of it. The film's almost like three very short vignettes, like, you know, three 20-minute shorts are sort of stuck yeah. together. The Angelique character is certainly, I think, the, perhaps the best addition to Hellraiser lore for this film. The way that she's done, certainly with the, the seduction angle side to her, very much plays into... Um, you know, Hellraiser's overall MO and its themes. The the eyes turning black, I know it's a, quite a trope, but I think they did that quite well. But there's the alternate voice that she has when she speaks in her demon voice. And when she, again, when she kills the apprentice, her right hand sort of turns demonic. So there's a true form that she has that you never quite see. And they do correctly do this sort of less is more. They never show you what... Angelique really is, and I think this might be where the lower budget maybe benefits the film. Um, this, the difference between Pinhead and the princess, I mean, they've certainly got their different styles. She wants to seduce Lamarchant to get what she wants from him. Pinhead just gets bored and decides to terrorize the family. And <laughs> Pinhead doesn't really, he's not quite the uh, genius that he was in the previous films and there's a sequence in this that I didn't quite enjoy. I don't know what you, I'd like to know what you guys thought on this, really. It's when Pinhead steals uh, Le Mer no, yeah, Le Merchant's son, and Le Merchant's walking down a corridor, and all there's his arms, and you hear the screams, there's some lights coming through uh, the, the holes in the wall, and to me that was very much a horror, like a ride in a horror fair park, mm. and it was not scary. It was a bit tacky. 
Yeah, I'd agree with that. In fact, the entire future section, because he obviously didn't have the budget to do this properly, it looked like a laser quest. <laughs> yeah, I, it was obviously cheap. I mean, a lot of the time I felt like I was watching Charmed. It, it, it just, yeah, you've got that kind of mid-90s vibe going on for it, but the look of it was just very TV show. It could have been an episode of Deep Space Nine or whatever as well at times. And yeah, even with the building, uh, the, those two security guards managed to find a special mystery door and walk down a really cheaply made corridor to find <laughs> Pinhead's penthouse. Oh, so I did like with the twins, we got a nice line in this where we went, oh, yeah, we're going to be messing with our heads. <laughs> oh, dirt, we get tied up. But then, later on, the twins separate when they're going to uh, kill people in space, right? You go, the twins can separate whenever they want. Why are we constantly stuck together? <laughs> I think this is another one of our introductions to a sort of style of Cenobite. So the chatter has gone from the series in the second film, but we, in this we get beast chatter, five gives us torso chatter, and there's female chatter and other chatters further on down the line in this series of movies. And this is our first set of twins. Now, we never see these twins again, but there are other twins throughout the series. For instance, we, we'll get there, but in Hellraiser 5s, for instance... And the the twins in this, there seems to be a process of turning someone into a Cenobite where you, a machine will stab them in the back and draw out red blood, and another one will be putting in blue blood. And I don't know if that's a comment on literal blue bloods, but it's mm. uh, something I noticed that happened to, um, from the second film, Dr. Chenard, it happened to him as well in that box when he got uh, uh, tricked by Julia. We point to make about this configuration. So we're getting a backing story for Volman configuration. Now the configuration appears to stay in the family because at first they seem to be going down as an almost epigenetics route where they're saying like, ah yes, the information survives in the blood, etc. However, they then change this about two thirds of the way through the film when the guys show the configuration of the nineties and uh, John, I think his name is, and he's saying, ah yes. This has been this is this has been passed on by family members. So it's not in the blood, it's just a design that's been passed on. It's weird if the design is passed on, but for some reason the purpose of the design isn't. Like the significance that opens a door to hell is the is the thing that you would pass on as opposed to passing on the design. You'd be saying, Hey guys, don't do anything with this configuration. And yet he's got this already on the computer. So the Cenobites are saying, Alright, well, we now have to get him to make this thing in the room open up and then we can create some form of a, a holocaust on earth basically here the issue with them saying that because they already have the configuration it implies that the reason they need john is his technical proficiency the centipedes need to learn to code guys and that's the thing that's stopping them from taking over the world but is it the configuration itself that actually unleashes hell or is it something else because that was unclear right yes uh, the monsieur delisle did this massive um, ritual with the... He brought the prostitute in. Under the table, we have a pentagram. And he starts repeating this Latin phrase over and over, getting more and more pantomime with each iteration. And the the flayed skin uh, starts filling out. The demon comes up. Now, 
he made that portal open. The box, the box is in the room when the ritual happens, but the box is not the focal point of the ritual. The box does its little twisty moving about stuff, but there's nothing that would lead you to think that the box is what opened the portal, which obviously in dialogue, we have the merchant going to his um, autopsy friend and saying, my, my toy is opening a portal to hell. Now, yes, I, I know this sounds like splitting a very weird hair or splitting a demonic horn, if you will, but yes, a portal to hell was opened, but that box didn't necessarily open it on this occasion. But he hasn't seen the box being activated since Delisle opened that portal to hell. So there's, from what I could tell, nothing that would make him believe that it could. Yeah, so basically Delisle in theory, because it's him doing the ritual, then he could do that to anything, right? Or do you think it would have to be anything that has that configuration on it? Because the box, as you said, it doesn't have a magical property until he interferes with it. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering, if he, say he was just doing a spell to a piece of ham, then would we also have a passageway to hell? It doesn't have to be that configuration and someone activating that configuration. Like, it's um, it's frustrating because the box is so iconic, mm -hmm. and yet it's just kind of, it's sort of robbed of a bit of its dangerousness here. Yeah. And it, I mean, you raise an interesting point. If it wasn't for Hellraiser 2, where we saw a load of boxes all activated at once in the uh, asylum, then we would have just assumed that there is just the one box. Um, but obviously Hellraiser 2 countermands that, so only the one box was present in the room when the portal to Hell was opened. And if that's necessary, did he make other boxes and go through the same process? Are there other Angelinks? Something I want to bring in that's a positive to this film we mentioned that Pinhead kind of seems a bit shoehorned in early in the script and that the timeline was possibly rearranged in order to do this. But Pinhead's actually pretty cool in this film. I like having more Doug Bradley, just like in the third one. I like having him around more. He's got some really good lines in this one when he says, like, you suffer beautifully. The bit where he talks about Earth towards the end, where he's going like, Ah, Earth, and describes it from a position of fondness as if it's just another planet to him. You know, it builds up the epic scale pretty well. And I also, like you were saying earlier about the Chatterer dog, I enjoyed that. I liked the, consist the consistency with the iconography. I thought the design was quite sound. I also liked that if anyone heard our uh, last episode of Nicholas Vince, he said that he was asked if the Chatterer dog is the dog of the Chatterer. And I just thought that was a cute idea. I could not think about it when we watched this. So, in that respect, there's some aspects of the Cenobites appearing in it a lot that really appealed to me. I just wish it were appearing a lot in a better film. Hmm. Uh, despite pretty much us only dealing in negatives so far, it's not entirely a bad film. But when Pinhead does appear, I mean, Doug Bradley could have been reading a restaurant menu and I would have paid attention. He just commanded the screen as soon as he opened his mouth. You know, mm. it, it was so sorely needed by that point of the film. It just switched it. It was, I would say it was probably a little meandering. It didn't quite tie the two generational gaps together. You know, you've got the 18th century bit. Fast forward to the John Merchant architect part. You're still following it, but it's like, you know, what, what's what's the payoff here? What's going to happen? 
And then we get the Cenobites arrive, and yeah, it's the way he delivers his dialogue at that point, it's so needed, and it kind of even adds a level of gravitas to the film, I suppose. It just elevates it above what it had been up to this point. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Mm. I will add as well, just to quote what the lines that Doug Bradley has says that make me go, yes, because we want, we want to see Doug Bradley, we want to hear him say cool things. His question, do I look like someone who cares what God thinks? <laughs> Brilliant. And his speech, when he, he, he meets the two twins, which, by the way, I was on Wikipedia earlier today, I checked out their names, and one of them is called Michael Polish. The other one is called Mark Polish in real life. So the parents decided to name them both, you know, names starting with N. I don't know why they did that. But anyway, uh, yeah, he's speaking to the human twins and they're pointing their guns at him. They say, don't make us put pain on you. Says, How dare you use that word? And, like, I am pain. That's a brilliant <laughs> speech he gives right there. Very, very yeah. pinhead. Yeah, he was very in character. Uh, even though this this film is, I think, a thematic departure from the previous ones, Pinhead is still in character there. I think a lot of the backing story is is quite implied here because for the relationship with Angelique, it's all about telling rather than showing. You know, we're told, ah, yes, everything's very uh, different now. But aside from a couple of little bits, we don't really get the impression she's much of a trickster, do we? We see her as a seductress. But then she'd fit in right in the Hellraiser universe, because so is everyone else in it. Angelique, despite the implied mystique of the character, she kind of gets a bum rap. She gets summoned against her will. She is enthralled to Delisle first, and then Delisle's apprentice. And she's having to do his bidding for 200 years. Then she's free for, like, what? how long it takes to move to America and within a week she's turned into a Cenobite because mm. Pinhead does say you can either work with me or work for me and, and he just loses patience and, but having said that he only gives her the one chance the one evening to try and seduce the Le Merchant guy and then he immediately decides to go in and start terrorizing the family so he's, he's very impatient in this film or in other films it's implied that he has more patience but that's in a film to come so I won't mention that just yet yeah I think with their relationship it seems like we're trying to go for a bit of a a bit of a kind of slave and master sort of domination style relationship because we've got a lot of these kind of contracts of all right the you know you're you're gonna I'm gonna be your master for this part and then that gets subverted and Pinhead's like, I'm going to be your master for the remainder of the film. So it feels like we're kind of hinting at, much like much for the rest of the film, we're kind of hinting at a cool idea. But I don't think it's really realised because so much has to happen in such a short period of time. That's why we don't really get relationships with the characters. I might say that, and I'll give a quick bit of explanation for this as well, Angelique is perhaps the Megatron of this series where in Transformers 1, he's frozen until the end of the third act. Two, he's the apprentice to the Fallen. Three, he's servant of Sentinel Prime. Four, I forget, he's someone else's bitch in four. But the (laughs) point is, Megatron is never the main villain. And Mm. even though he is, 
on paper, he literally isn't in the films. And in this, I get the feeling the writer had a lot, the writer had a lot of love for the character Angelique and really wanted her to come out into her own as a a main villain. And it it it, it just doesn't quite unfold that way because she's always second fiddle to someone else. Yeah, I never I never saw past Transformers Free, so some of that was lost on me. <laughs> <laughs> I was so pissed off with Transformers 2 when it turned out the Fallen was an individual Transformer. I assumed like Revenge of the Fallen, I assumed it says all the dead come back. We're like, no, that's the Fallen. That's that. <laughs> I was singular for Fallen. The fell, the one that fell. Yes, yes, the one that fell is coming back. Yeah, going back to the Cenobites uh, and the film's effects in general, I suppose. I, I quite enjoyed the part with the twins, the security guards being turned into Cenobites. That was quite fun. Reminded me of the thing a little bit. Um, but I have to say, the effects overall didn't seem quite as visceral as we've had in the previous films. There was plenty of gore, blood and so on, but it just didn't seem to have that level of grot and disgusting, Mm. horrible body degenerative effects that we saw from one through three. And that's part of the magic of those first three films is the way that, that was delivered. But even when we saw some really interesting and quite unique ways of killing off some of the cast and seeing the Cenobites being created. It just didn't seem to capture that level of gore that we were used to previously. I know what you mean. Yeah. There's, um, it's, it's not got that quite that same oomph. The only scene really that makes me sort of squirm is the, when Angelique turns on that apprentice guy and she bites a hole in his cheek and then with her demonic hat claw hand, she sort of pokes it and like ugh, that, that yeah. bit but that's about it like there's nothing else really in that film that stands out for me and I want to say there's one there's Angelique dispatches a guy and I don't understand how she does it and it's on a space station and she's in the mirror and she's like help me please and he, he approaches the mirror then she starts laughing and then the glass has somehow cut him in half even though the glass never moved it it, it, it's just really weird. I didn't get that one. They, they ran out of budget or something. Yeah, I feel the same way about that scene. It absolutely baffled me. Like, uh, because that must have been one of the big special effects sequences as well. So you think there's some money being pumped into that one. Because it certainly wasn't pumped into a location. It's like most of these timelines, like all three of them, basically take place in a couple of rooms. There's very little exterior scenes in this film at all. We don't really get a sense of a world building. We don't really get a sense for the uh, for the specifics of the period. And again, that's fine. I appreciate it's a low-budget film. But again, go big or go home. I also just didn't find the sets particularly immersive. You know, I mentioned earlier on, quite flippantly, the future looks like a laser quest. But then in the present day, most of it takes place in this house, where the geography doesn't really make any sense. Where from the basement, they have to go upstairs to be on the ground floor. Then they go back downstairs into the hallway where uh, where Pinhead's standing there with the kid. Like, it just didn't really work for me. It also made the Cenobites seem a little bit shit as well, because making this span across a period of centuries, the Cenobites seem really incapable of tracking down this one family for the first 200 years. And then later on, 
when they open the puzzle box in space, why the heck do they do it at all? So you go, okay, well, we're going to open this so that we can uh, kill Pinhead. You're like, oh, or kill the Cenobites at last. And you've got this huge space station that makes up a box. Like, fuck knows if you've got planning permission for that. We know that the ship is designed to do something else, right? Because you've got that woman, Remmer, the one who he explains the entire story to whilst Pinhead's on the loose, which is absolutely crazy as well. And um, Remmer's like, ah, oh, you, you've hijacked the station, you've gone rogue. And you go, okay, well... He must own the station to have gone rogue uh, because he's managed to design it for the specifications of the box. But at the same time, like I like the idea of him overseeing the architecture of the station, saying, all right, I want to build it to these exact specifications. And the others don't ask any questions about it and go, why do we need this pattern on the outside? It's going to cost us a shitload. Yeah, and you know, this, this big button here turns it into a cube that will eradicate everything inside it yeah <laughs> i want to see the testing of that <laughs> well my first line of notes here says terminate a space station with that uh, robot designed for solving yeah. the puzzle box it just felt like it was there because it could be <laughs> and that robot gets killed you're like what about is desire as opposed to hands that open the box and they kill yeah. that robot they did away with that, yeah. <laughs> I will say that I did hear about the fact that the budget was getting cut during the filming of this movie, so it, it leaves us budget-wise in a very strange kind of up and down. Because there's a scene in the, the French sequence in, in the chateau when the merchant's talking with his wife, and he's showing her the box. And over her shoulder, and I noticed it because it was just framed strangely, like she was in focus, but there's two dolls on a shelf behind her, and they're in focus as well. And as she's talking, they start moving their heads. Never brought up again. That might have been something, but to go to the effort of showing that, and clearly that, that scene was filmed when the film had something <laughs> that was towards a budget, because they clearly don't when they're in space. And I also want to mention the name Rimmer, which is... I mean, I'm, I'm just, my head's going to Red Dwarf when I hear that. But I noticed that another one of those Marines was called Parker, which makes me start thinking of aliens. So there, there seems to be a lot of nods and a wink all over the place in here. With Rimmer, I didn't quite get into her character. I just, oh, she seemed like a total liability. Like everything she did was to the detriment of, of the plan. She just kept getting in the way. And because of the light sort of vignette approach where it's just very short 20 minute bits stuck together then there's not really a, a developed relationship between the two she's basically just there as a means for the audience to hear a story that that guy should have absolutely no access to and i'm going to touch on another bugbear here we have the same actor playing three different roles across a period of 400 years i don't want to turn this into a biology lesson but for every time uh, you've got a, a subsequent generation, and from a starting point, each parent's biological contribution goes down. So your kids, 50% your DNA, 50% your partner's DNA. And then uh, your kids' kids, 25% similarity, and so on and so on. Where are three guys who look identical? This should not happen when we're separated by 400 years. Makes me think of the sheer amount of inbreeding that must be going on in this family. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say we didn't see how many fingers and toes he had, did we? <laughs> I mean, well, 
We did see his fingers because he, he had those uh, VR gloves on when he was doing the box <laughs> through the robot. Toes, no idea. But yeah, he, he, this this one movie is almost its own trilogy um, of short stories, really. And we got the same actor playing the same guy. And I did make the note of, in the future, he's he's completely shaven all the hair on his head. He's, he's sort of a skinhead cut on. And I was wondering, I bet that's also because in the previous two timelines, they got the same actor wearing different wigs mm. to give him a slightly different appearance. I mean, fair play. It didn't do a Back to the Future Part 3, where for some reason, both his parents, uh, the same actors have been used yeah. to play his grandparents. They're like... Wait, 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 that shouldn't be. <laughs> anyway, I suppose it's a nod from the fans rather than anything else. Maybe it's to reinforce that the story he's telling isn't literally true. It could be that. That makes it a better film if you pretend that. I want to point out something just very quickly about um, sort of the end, because I think the, the biggest takeaway from this film is the Angelique character and what a delight she was, because we have her pinhead, we have Doug Bradley, we were expecting him to be brilliant, and he was, but I think Angelique character was a pleasant surprise in this film and made the film less of a chore to get through. She was entertaining to watch, and it's I think it's sometimes when a creator in a series introduces a... This will be a slight spoiler as well for the rest of the series, because presumably if in 1996 Angelique was turned into a Cenobite, we should see her in future films as a Cenobite, and we never see her again, unfortunately. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing uh, when watching the next film, because obviously that's, what, 96? So surely these Cenobites from this era will carry over for the rest until year space station. But, yeah, I think... The film itself, I mean, weighing it up against the previous three, it wasn't going to stand a chance. Mm-hmm. And it, it does have that cheap TV movie quality to it. I mean, there's one point where you probably could be watching, well, you'd be mistaken for watching a you know a, a TV soft porn movie where he's having that nightmare about, I, I believe it's, it's John that's having the nightmare about uh, sleeping with Angelique. On a rotating oh, bed, yeah, or yeah. poster bed. <laughs> Imagine being those actors at that point. You've got a gyrate all over each other. You're surrounded by net curtains and the bed spinning round. I mean, that that would that must have been some weird <laughs> moment in your career. That <laughs> sequence, I know that sequence was very sort of. 80s Madonna music video. Could you imagine filming that <laughs> sequence? How pissed off you'd be if they go, by the way, the director just disowned the film. Yeah. <laughs> you'd be like, for fuck's sake, look what we did for this movie. <laughs> but uh, uh, I've got one other wee note about the theme tune. The uh, theme tune over credits, I really enjoyed the give it a bit of a futuristic vibe. Slight hint of Star Trek with the synth for using alongside <laughs> the usual Hellraiser notes. And also, actually, it's another one to watch. Gary J. Tuncliffe begins to do special effects in this film. He'll be coming back, even going on to direct one of the movies. But I won't say which because Jim's not seen it yet. So basically, we're beginning what's going to be referred to as the Tuncliffe era of Hellraiser. <laughs> Well, on, on to the director again. Uh, this was uh, Alan Smithid, I, mm-hmm. I believe is the appropriate 
phrase, uh, but the the director's uh, Kevin Yeager, is it? He's more known yeah, right. for his makeup work, and it's the only film he's got a directing credit on, as far as I could see. So he must have had a real bad experience making this to turn it to an Alan Smithy film if it's the only film you you know going to be credited for as a director. And to be honest, you know we've said a lot to this film's detriment. And as I've already mentioned, weighing it up against the previous films, it is not going to look as good. But it is not a bad film. Yeah, like hand and heart, uh, let's get on to ratings here. I can't get myself to quite hate this film. I think the thing is, there's such a good core premise here. And the idea, even if a film fails in its execution, the ambition of it, the idea of it is so interesting. You couldn't call it a sequel that goes with emotions or plays it particularly safe, right? Like, the idea of saying we're doing a movie that takes place across a period of centuries, this family tormented by the same demons, this configuration that's be- that's showing up for a period of 400 years that unlocks a gate to hell. Mm-hmm. I just found it really interesting. And if he really had the budget to commit to this, which the director presumably thought he would have, you read the script of it, and the script's quite cool. You've got some bizarre bits, like the implication the Cenobites killed Gandhi, for instance. But at the same time, you have quite a tight little movie there. Something that just could look awesome if it was properly made, if it was given the loving care that I think it deserved. Apparently, Clive Barker said it was the best script that he saw out of the four of them, including his own one. So, actually, that might be fake news. He might have called it the best of the sequels. I'll have to double-check that. <laughs> But the point (laughs) being that, like, there's no reason that this had to turn out the way that it did, except for it really does look like studio interference. Hmm. So I I think it's almost impossible to rate. Part of me, part of me was wants to give it three stars. It's like the sort of, yeah, it didn't reach its potential. There's a lot wrong with it. But for what it does right, it's a cool, memorable movie. And as much as we're slagging it off, it's bold. So yeah, I think I might give this one three stars. What are you guys directing? Um, well, if Sylvester Stallone gets to do his own director's cut of Rocky Four, why can't we get a director's cut of Hellraiser Four? You know, it's putting it <laughs> out there. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, it is ambitious. You, you can see that it's been trimmed. I was kind of umming and ahhing between three and three and a half. The extra half comes following the next film. Because in retrospect, having watched these in order, the next film does make this one seem a bit better. So I think I'll stick with a three. Release the Jaeger cut. Uh, <laughs> what, do you, what, do you, what do you reckon, Alistair? I'm going to go with uh, three, I think. Um, it's for me fundamentally this film commits two of the sins that Hellbound did but makes them even bigger so obviously in Hellbound they show you the origin of Pinhead and they kill off Pinhead in Hellraiser 4 they show you the origin of the box and they kill off Pinhead again for good this time quote unquote so that's twice he's been killed off now I think that it's it's a tough one because like all your heroes, like your villains, I should say, the Jasons and what have you, they all have to lose because they're the villains. 
but they need to sort of survive for the sequel. And Hellraiser is is no exception to that rule of being caught in that particular sort of horror movie genre jam, if you will. But um, I think explaining the Cenobites and the box, I'd rather have kept that a mystery, personally. Where does it come from? Who are these things? And the only mystery that is left, really, is... You know, the homeless guy that sort of looks after the box and gives mm. it uh, wayward souls. They never explain that and keep it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, is that your neighbor's dog outside? Yes, it is. What a prick. Thanks <laughs> <laughs> uh, interfering with this podcast. <laughs> it was chattering earlier on. <laughs> so my issues with the film are it, it went in a direction I wouldn't have, personally. And by that, you know... I'm not a movie director myself, so um, I'm subject to these rules. Uh, But I would say that my takeaway for this, Angelique is a great Cenobite, and I would have loved to have seen her in more films going forward. Absolutely loved that, and we didn't. And shes I think she's actually, like Doug Bradley aside, and I'm not even mentioning it because it it literally goes without saying, but Angelique, and every scene she's in is great, and I'm going to give this a three and a half, actually. I'll go ahead. I'll do it. Three and a half. Okay. Okay, cool. All right. So that is Bloodline. Now, well, we know that Jim didn't like this one as much, but let's learn if me and Alistair did. We're going to talk about Inferno. All hell is about to break loose again. This time, a battle between good and evil has a familiar face. Welcome to hell. Hellraiser Inferno, the first of the straight-to-DVD, straight-to-video Hellraiser movies. This is the fifth one, directed by Mr. Scott Derrickson, who would go on to do Sinister and Doctor Strange. I've seen there's a bit of disagreement about whether this film began life as a Hellraiser movie or not. Derrickson swears it did. Doug Bradley has said it didn't. I don't know who to believe. What do you guys reckon? Alistair, do you think this seems like a Hellraiser movie? I'm going to say yes, but it probably not. I mean, I could. this would be the first of our, I'll say, police procedural Hellraiser films and my experience with this one is I really enjoyed it I enjoyed it when it first came out and for me it redefined what a Hellraiser film could be because where do you go after for the death of Inhead that's the whole life cycle of the uh, Cenobites if you will but this film really did something special it went in a direction I wasn't expecting there's some cracking dialogue and the dialogue's sharper in this film than the previous one not all but some of the visuals are better as well there's some great transitions great compositions and it's difficult to say if this started life as a hellraiser story because if it's not pinhead who would the engineer have been I think this sort of seems like a Jacob Ladder style movie I think this could have well began as a fairly generic you are your own worst enemy kind of film like the engineer still having a twist obviously full spoilers folks um of 
oh, the child is you. Oh, the monster is you. You could have still had that and then the engineer is another version of the same protagonist. Like, I can buy that this possibly was a Hellraiser film because it does seem like the way forward. You go, well, we've just done this great big film set in space. We didn't have a budget for it. So what do we have a budget for? Something much more small scale, something much more intimate like the first one had. Something I disagree with, though, about the dialogue being sharper. There was some moments, but I don't think Pinhead has any good lines in this film at all. I'd say that the, the better dialogue comes in the form of uh, Joseph Thorne's character. And he, I mean, his dialogue, dialogue he has with uh, his partner, Anthony, and that I found a bit more human, if you will. The human character mm. has certainly had something, it, it felt more real. Whereas with Hellraiser 4, of course, we're getting big exposition dumps, the most egregious of right at the very beginning in the space station, where the captain of the SWAT team hitting a space station, all right, this guy's got the space station. He's He designed it, the government paid for it, he's stolen it from the government, and, and now he's doing something with it, and we don't know what that is. <laughs> we, we need to go in and get this guy. Like, that is atrocious dialogue. I can see why it's there, it's just for the sake of time and get this over with but with Hellraiser 5 I found it the dialogue yeah I did I did find it better mm. true uh, Pinhead's dialogue in this film he doesn't have any great Pinhead speeches like this film never appears on like top 10 quotes by Doug Bradley's Pinhead Hellraiser Inferno's not appearing here I think I think I'm going to agree with you on something actually about the right now swear. I think it does benefit from the idea of being slightly smaller because in Hellraiser Four we have so much to cram in that the characters basically just talk about being in Hellraiser Four. They see the absolute minimum that's required to move the plot along. Whereas in this one, there's a bit more room for psychological depth. There's a bit more room for characterization than we had before. In fact, arguably. There's more of a character study element to this than there is to any of the sequels so far. Yeah, it's I like the idea as well that this guy is living the life that he wants to lead, but in hurting others, he was hurting himself. And in I mean, is that fundamentally? I think the story about the the Cenobites is one between sort of id and super ego, the what you want and what you have to do to earn what you, you truly want and the Cenobites offering this indulgence this experience beyond measure as a cheap way out I mean it's essentially it's people who are looking for to escape life, it's a form of escapism people who want to actively search out the box like Frank and in this film we have this Joseph Thorne character who uh, he's almost Frankian himself and that he's he's bored with his life we're, we're given the we're introduced to the character playing chess with the professor and this is shorthand code for smart guy because he's he's beating this professor and says, <laughs> see you next time professor and the professor First of all, he's he's named Professor, and he replies in a very generic, yeah, 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 like he lost. Like he's basically, they're coding this character Einstein, and Joseph <laughs> Thorne just beat him. 
So we know that he's smart. And there are other aspects of the film which I think are better told. One of them being the we see him betray his partner, and that comes back to bite him later on in the film. We see him sort of just keep avoiding his family and never spending time with them. And then when he wants them, they're not there for him. So that sort of duality, uh, I really quite, I quite like that. I will point out something very quickly in that even if I'm talking like I like this film and I do like this film, I do have issues with it. My biggest comes from how the film is framed. So we have these crime scenes and at each crime scene, there's a child's finger is being found. They all belong to the same child. We have to find the person doing this to the child as quickly as possible. But there's also the very first crime scene where he finds the box. At that crime scene, inside the, the wick of a candle, he finds this finger. That's the first finger is found. My interpretation of the film is when he takes the box for the first time and opens it, and you see the lights change. There's a shimmer, there's a, a gleam, a glow. He has a nightmare, but then everything seems normal. No chains, no nothing what Frank got. He, he thinks life's just going on as normal. My, my interpretation of the film is he's in hell from that moment onwards. He's going from crime scene to crime scene to crime scene, finding these children's fingers. My issue is, if that's true... How did he find a finger in the in the candle wax before yeah. he opened the box to hell? That's and it, it undermines what the story's sort of implying that it is. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely valid. Uh, Jim, you didn't like this film very much. Oh, it's not that I didn't like it. It's just in contrast to the previous film, it was slightly inferior. The, the biggest issue I had with it is that the protagonist is generally unlikable. He's not a nice person. Um, and I was sat there the entire time waiting for something to pull the rug, say uh, a Kirsty Cotton comes along, you know, to, to flip that protagonist from this person to someone else. But it didn't come along. So it's difficult to root for someone in a film who is a piece of shit, really. Isn't it? Mm. Um, it, the weird but, thing about this film is that it kind of makes you root for Pinhead. It's like, yeah. yeah. We don't <laughs> like this guy. Pinhead, can you come along and tear his soul apart? Yeah, that, that's that's the thing. I mean, we do have nice people surrounding him. His partner is, you know, is a down-to-earth, honest guy just trying to do right by what his job is and his wife seems downtrodden and just wants to spend time with him his kid misses him all these innocent people that he's affecting could quite easily have made for a better protagonist but we stuck with him and it just didn't pay off for me going back to what you said about it potentially being a different film if i recall around this time it was made it was 2000 there was quite a few big Hollywood films about dirty cops reaping what they sow. Uh, you've got Training Day, Dark Blue springs to mind as well. Uh, obviously, a different era, but LA Confidential. It's, that was quite popular at the time, so I imagine they were possibly going for that sort of theme. Um, but I 
Yeah, I would imagine that this was probably a hell. Well, if not a Hellraiser, is definitely going to be a horror film from day dot. But yeah, my, the, the biggest flaw for it is not having a protagonist you can root for. But and like the previous film, it it definitely has a TV show vibe about it, and that horrible turn of a century look. I mean, the the, the Joseph's hairstyle, for example, that wouldn't have been out of place in a new metal video sometimes, you know? <laughs> I reckon that, like, where I'd slightly challenge this is if Joseph is being an unlikable protagonist, okay, so you wouldn't want to hang out with him. But I do think that Craig Sheffer manages to bring some layers to the part, or at least I think he manages to bring out more than is on the page. It's a kind of bravado, uh, kind of um, swagger about him. But as the film goes on, you just see him letting go of this. There's moments of kind of unguarded vulnerability that I think serve the character quite well. Mm. Like I really enjoy the bit where, or not enjoy is maybe the wrong word, the bit where he goes and he sees the pillar, and the pillar he's got his wife and kid on it, and the daughter's going, when are you yeah. coming home, daddy? Like I thought that was quite effective, because there's a poignancy here. The guy obviously loves his kid, and it's through this desire to protect his kid that he, start, that he seems to internalize the idea that he needs to find who's harming this other kid. But then, of course, his obsession with doing that is what gets him away with his relationship with his own daughter. So I thought that was quite interesting. There's also something quite poignant about the idea that we see him as a child and, you know, we know that he really loves brownies as a kid. And then we see this totally joyless guy later on. He's at this point in his life where... Things that cost a thousand times the price of a brownie give him a lot less joy than that brownie does when he's a child. And mm. I thought that was quite nice. Yeah, there, there is that element to it. And building up to the scene where he's at the motel room the following day after spending the night there with the prostitute, you, you do see uh, you know, the mask slipping a certain vulnerability. But then he sets his partner up. Like, you're just warming mm. to him, and then he does that dick move again. Especially because his partner's, his partner's already, for some reason, he's got no leverage, but he's at all at this point, but his partner and his partner's agreeing to help him cover up a murder. Yeah, yeah. Because the thing where he says to his partner, will they believe me or you? They go, well, he's probably believe Tony. Firstly, because Tony's not a complete dick. And secondly, because you're linked to both murder victims and Tony isn't. And yet Tony's like, oh no, he's right. Tony was too trusting. If ever was a man who trusted too much. I mean, there's, there's certainly um, the implications that... Uh Joseph Thorne's sort of long history of uh, malfeasance in the police force. I mean, that's set up well when he take when he's in the evidence room. He takes the wallet, pulls out the money, pockets it, and then adjusts the amount on the paper from four hundred down to one hundred. But just simply by scoring it out, like he, he, I mean, the robbery is right there. <laughs> oh, it struck me as this really naked form of corruption, like we get in the. If any of you guys have watched The Shield, The Shield is about a very corrupt cop, Vic. And there's this bit where his boss just says to him, Hey, Vic, for this mission, you're going to have to play a corrupt cop. And he goes, Oh, bit of a stretch. And the two of them laugh together. Like, <laughs> they're just openly acknowledging their corruption. And with Joseph, yeah, we got this guy who's just so blatantly a dick in it. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. 
Yeah, it it I think one of the appeals to me for this movie is shade and fraud. Where you get to watch someone that you don't like fall from grace and they fall all the way down and it's and it's their own it's their own undoing. It's I actually want to talk about very briefly about I suppose my history with this film when I first saw it and it came out in two thousand and one and at this time I thought there's only four Hellraiser films they're not making anymore and I was in you might not have heard of it there was this place opened back in two thousand and one called Blockbuster and I was in there and I saw <laughs> on the shelf. I got to to keep in mind our audience is men between thirty five and forty five so they'll know Blockbuster. <laughs> <laughs> I was in Blockbuster, and whatever happened to Blockbuster? There's a story there. Anyway, maybe for another time. So I'm in Blockbuster, and I can't even remember what I went in to get. I went in with a purpose, but then I saw Hellraiser Inferno on the shelf, and sort of Pinhead's face in that sort of half uh, glow there, and I thought, that, I'm going to go get that, and I really enjoyed it. As I say, the, the film is flawed, and it's most definitely a lower-budget one than the previous films, the entries in the series. There's also what does sort of irk me about it is, I would say that the the music for this film, it's not Hellraiser music at all, it's sort of film noir. I mean, this is a film noir Hellraiser film. The, 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 the Christopher Young's soundtrack from Hellraiser 1 that, that's gone here completely yeah to me it seems like someone had been playing a few too many PS1 games and thought I like that <laughs> and just stuck like and in some places it's just completely completely the wrong music choice like the bit where he's gone out to that that bar in the sticks that's full of cowboys and he's out the back getting his head kicked in any other film, that music would have been scoring a sex scene. I mean, it just <laughs> sounded completely out of place. <laughs> we, we do have a porno music uh, during the seduction scene where I'm convinced this is a reference to the first film. He tries to seduce the sex worker. See, I see sex worker because I'm more modern than you guys. He tries to, he tries to seduce her <laughs> by, uh, uh, by, by doing some magic. Just like in the first one, where that guy does the thing with his tongue and the cigarette, and you're oh, like, yeah. uh, so I, I'm convinced that was trying to do a bit of whispering intimately between the films in the series. But yeah, I, the, the porno music for that bit is just really funny. I love the bit where he takes his little vial of cocaine and he's got because he's in the crime scene, he's got his rubber gloves on, and he twists his hands around, and then the vial disappears. And it's like that's close-up magic, but nobody's near him when he's doing that it's like who is that for you're just entertaining yourself here I, I did like the fact that he keeps doing that even if it's for no one's benefit <laughs> just <laughs> that's cropped up at intervals you know let's have a bit of magic maybe he'd spent a bit too much time practicing that so, oh come on let's just do it in this scene as well it does come up in the scene where he's having a meeting with um or what we later find out is uh, Pinhead, who the actor who plays Dexter's father in the show TV show Dexter. There are a few links I noticed to Dexter uh, this time around watching it. Obviously, that actor and the fact that the corrupt cop keeps having monologues with himself, much like Dexter does. So there might be a link there. Anyway, um, yeah, he mentions that I do these bits of close-up magic and... You know, the, the psychologist says, your uh, your daughter must be very pleased with that. And he's like, 
she doesn't even know I do it. And that does further strengthen the sort of distance between himself and his daughter. It's weird because you'd think that he learned magic so his daughter would think he was cool or something like that. Like you'd, he strikes me as a kind that, of yeah. the dad who's like pulling coins out from behind kids' ears. Um, I want to touch on something that I really don't like about this film. So this film is ostensibly a mystery. The audience know we're watching Hellraiser Part 5. As such, it's a murder mystery where the audience know the murderer, and the main character doesn't. So we're in Act 3, while Joseph's just farting around in Act 1. And then when we, when we go, oh, look, it's Pinhead, he suddenly completely changed his MO, because Pinhead's like, ah, you know, we're now moral arbiters here. It's, it's a much more kind of Christian interpretation than we've had before. Rather than being angels to some and demons to others, they're giving a sense of what is right and what is wrong. And while this guy is quite... We do get in the impression he's corrupt. A lot of this comes down to the way he's treating his wife and his daughter. Now, maybe maybe the, uh, the Cenobites are sticklers for fidelity and rules in their relationships. But I just got the vibe that if you're going to be going to hell because you're cheating on your wife, I don't think the Cenobites are the demons to do this to you. <laughs> and, and it just sort of struck me as a very, as a very like, an interpretation that completely messes with the bad guy's motivations. Would you guys agree? I mean, that was quite yeah. a big shift. Yeah, they, but the, the Cenobites' motives have sort of changed with each movie. The first one has you believe that they just shred anyone that opens the box. The second one, Tiffany opens the box, and now we're, we're now, you're okay, we'll leave you alone type thing. And the third one, well, really had Pinhead killing anything that moved once he had the opportunity. So they, they do function differently in each film. In this one, yes, they certainly are these moral arbiters um, guiding Joseph Thorne towards his own destruction. Um, there is a scene actually I quite like where it's alluding to something that's going to come up later on when he sits down and he's, he's got the two sort of stress balls that he's playing with. And he says to him that there was, a, there was once a police officer who just turned up to work one day and shot himself in the head. And of course, that's said about midway through the second act. Later on, when... Joseph Thorne wakes up from it all. He thinks he wakes up from it all. He thinks he's going back to his normal life. He just had a horrible dream. And then he picks up the phone and it's Terra. Terra, What was the name of the sex worker again? I can't remember for the life of me what her name was. I wrote it down and I can't find it. But anyway, yes. So it's the sex worker getting torn apart by the Cenobites and he just starts shaking and freaking out and all his colleagues are asking him if he's all right and he just pulls the gun on himself and wakes back up. So it's this, this film sort of becomes the worst version of Groundhog Day ever. <laughs> but I'm quite happy that this character is going through that suffering. I'm like, I'm really happy for that. I wish his backing story had just been a little bit more interesting. I was waiting for the big twist, like, you killed your dad, or something like that. We just didn't get anything that interesting in the movie. The parents are quite like the sort of parental neglect that we see going on. It does lead to one of the one of the most visually striking scenes in Five, where he turns up to the hospital, there's the bed laid out, this pristine white bed, but nurse presses her hand on it and all this red shows up. And he presses his finger down on it, whips the quilt away, and we see what 
you know, we see evidence of a, a Hellraiser having happened. Yeah, like, it was very visually striking. I'm going to give it that. Like, Scott Derrickson, you can absolutely see the potential for him in terms of how the scenes are shot. He frames them beautifully. Some of the bits are genuinely creepy, like the bit mm. where uh, we first encounter all the Cenobites. You've got the... The, the Stitch Twins, is that what they're called? Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, the Stitch Twins, and we've got this torso chat where bits were very first coming out, or where we're in the woods before that absolutely bizarre martial arts sequence, which shouldn't be in the <laughs> film. Uh, we have like yeah. the, chatter, the chatter and stuff like hiding up in the trees, and it, it, that was really good. You know, you can totally see how this guy, when he had a better, better source material, had a bigger budget, he was able to make some really good movies like Sinister. Yeah. There's some the elements in the dream sequences and almost the entire film I would interpret as a dream. This is one thing I do like about the film as well. It can be open to interpretation as well. Like if you remember in three, when Pinhead tricks Joey into giving him the box, he he manifests an image of her father. And in this, we see Pinhead appear at least as the main cowboy that does all the talking. And also the Presbyterian uh, priest. He's he's both of those characters. And in the hallway, there's an old man in a wheelchair wheeling down. And, you know, his, his mouth's been pulled very wide open and he has this childlike cackle. And then there's two nurses that walk by that both talk in tandem as well. I would say those two would be the Stitch Twins and the man in the wheelchair would be the Torso Chatterer. Mm-hmm. And again, in, in the <laughs> bizarre... The kickboxing match he has way out in the woods that uh, the two, those two basically were the Stitch Twins kicking him in before Pinhead turns up to uh, do a little bit more teasing exposition. What well, do you reckon, Jim, as a martial arts fan? Were you were you big on that scene? Well, those Kung Fu cowboys did seem to come out of nowhere, didn't they? It was <laughs> just absolutely out of context from everything mm-hmm. else that was going on. It was just... Yeah, I, I think if I'd have just roughed him up a little, I don't know, a little less finesse would have probably driven it a bit better. But yeah, there was all of a sudden, oh, what's popular at the moment? Oh, the Matrix. Yeah, let's have a bit of that. Oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> yeah I bet, I bet it. that was it. That's, that's a good point, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I did think the cowboy bar bit was quite cool. It was a decent aesthetic there, and it was consistent with the uh, the dream logic that Alistair brings up. Like this kind of this dreaminess did work about it. We did have bits of sort of Alice in Wonderland there, and I think also if we take the whole thing as being a dream for the or like a vision, I guess the for the most part, the second second and third act, then it makes some of the plot holes seem less like plot holes. Like for instance, we've got the uh, the piercing guy. Now, by the way, body modification very Hellraiser liked that. But we have the piercing guy. The piercing yeah. dudes are like. Ah, uh, yeah, I've got this associate that's been speaking to the engineer. And you're going, okay, so they must have opened the box, but then not got killed for it. Otherwise, he couldn't speak to Pinhead. It's a casual reference to Pinhead killing this guy, Terry's wife. So did Terry's wife open the, open the box as well? The thing is, points like this don't really matter, because once we find out that, oh, well, Pinhead's the one who's behind it all, twist in a Hellraiser film, then... We also get this kind of time loop begins. The time loop's quite cool because it's really disorienting. It's done quite effectively. Yeah, we have kind of endless running down corridors and stuff like that. 
at the same time, Derrickson knows how to frame these bits. He knows how to get this disintegration on screen. He knows how to make you feel the same sense of of being lost. So I think there's a lot of really good bits to this film. A bit like the fourth one. I just don't think it's a very good film. I think the problem is we have the same tedious structure of the first two acts of go there, speak to this person who we barely know, speak to this person who we barely know, speak to this person we barely know, and then we get a, finally, we get to the meat of it, the bit that it feels like Derrickson wants to make at the end. It's inconsistent with the character of Pinhead's motivations, and it's bringing up to a twist that the audience already know the answer for. But yet, there's still something really striking about how it looks. So the journey feels quite satisfying, even if it's not written in a satisfying way. Yeah, it does lean a bit too heavily on the police procedural side of things. As as you've said, we, we all know what's happening from the opening. So do we need to see him going from A to B to C to D, trying to investigate it all? There are some striking moments so the, with the uh creepy ice cream man the, the, there's a real for real quality to it it just the, the lighting and the, the 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 scenery around it is so completely different to everything else we see in the film it's it's got that kind of 5 p.m glow about it whereas everything else is dark cold blue that, that sort of color but for some reason the ice cream man is like we're watching someone daydreaming about an episode of NCIS or something. <laughs> <laughs> the scene with the, the ice cream uh, pedophile guy was a bit strange in that I found that are we supposed to empathize with the pedophile in this, in this situation? Because I, I, I don't want good things to happen for either of them. Well, These yeah, are both awful I, I characters boils down to the fact that there aren't really any good people in this film. Because yeah. it's like, how dare you batter that pedophile? Yeah. <laughs> He's not your whipping boy, as he would say. Who's <laughs> a very strange one in that um, I found that set to be a bit stupidly put together. Because we, we clearly hear in dialogue that he's a pedophile. Hmm. He's got this ice cream van and he Thorn kicks him in, throws him inside his, his van but inside are all these pictures, lewd pictures of these naked women who are all obviously over the age of 18, which I think that in universe wouldn't be the preference for that character. But of course, <laughs> legally for the film, hmm. they could only show over 18 actresses. And I think, why not just have the inside of the ice cream van look like the inside of an ice cream van? We've already stated in dialogue what this man is. Like, we, the audience, we believe you. Well, I think when your protagonist is as skeevy and detestable as what we've got here in Joseph Fawn, you know, it's it's going to have to be someone even worse than that to, you know, for him to justify <laughs> giving him a kicking, really, I suppose. Um, <laughs> and obviously the, there would be certain laws in place about what they could display in his ice cream van and films. So I suppose maybe a bit of imagination has got to go. Yeah, but uh, the, the, the thing way. is, making it this guy a pedophile, I don't think you needed to do that for the script to work no, at no. all. Like, he's already he's already corrupt and selling drugs at an yeah. ice cream van. You know, we don't we don't yeah. like this guy. He's not he's not presented as morally neutral. 
And if he's no. if he's on the sex offenders register, why would he decorate the interior of his ice cream van, his place of business, <laughs> in such a grotesque fashion? <laughs> I did like him going up to the ice cream van, going, "Where's my birthday present?" Like again, it's just the naked display of corruption. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The film noir aspect was generally quite good with the uh, voiceover yeah. and a lot of the lighting, even if the soundtrack kind of betrayed it at points, but. I sort of wish the film had a bit more of a sense of humour about itself, really. Kind of, yeah. It kind of plays off more like an episode of The Animatrix than a maybe full-blown Hellraiser <laughs> film. I, like, I did like how uh, this guy Joseph has absolutely no chill. Like, he's just sitting there fiddling constantly with his balls. He's alive and balls, he's clacking. You know, it's uh, it kind of, oh, look how masculine this guy is. Oh, yeah, he's so, so rugged just sitting there gripping his iron balls repeatedly. But... Uh, you know, he's not he's not a likable person to be in the head of for 90 minutes. Yeah. And he's also not tragic enough for us to kind of, ex- not excuse it, but, like, forgive some of the time. Like, you know the movie Filth, for instance? Filth's yeah. a really good example of making you hate a, hate a character, having this anti-hero protagonist, and then, by the end of the film, you don't root for him as such, but you don't want him to die either. And yeah. this one, we just don't really have like, enough of a turnaround thing. Like, I did find the idea of intergenerational parental neglect quite interesting, but he's unintentionally neglecting his kid as a consequence of being neglected by his parents. Hmm. But I just sort of felt like he wasn't... Like, he was an arsehole, but he wasn't quite bad enough to be tortured in the way that he's being tortured here. Like, he's facing up to his demons... Which is weird because what's the film's message? Face up to your demons and they get punished as a consequence of acknowledging them. Like he'd be better off if he didn't face up to them. But I just didn't think his demons were, were really all that. Like he's simultaneously too unlikable to be be a protagonist, but also he's not quite like the story's just not quite dark enough. It's it, it, yeah. it hints at it implies an element of darkness, but. I think we're very conscious about making us hate this guy too much, so we're lacking a bigger plot twist. We're lacking a reason that he's being tormented here. I did like that his mum is played by Bartlett's secretary from the West Wing. That really pleased me. But I just wanted something a bit more about his relationship with his parents. Like something that maybe he was responsible for deaths or something, as opposed to he's a bad son to parents mm. who were bad to him. You never visit Joe. Yeah, like, is that why Pinhead's torture this guy? You don't visit your parents and you cheat on your wife? Oh, and you're sometimes corrupt. You're like, you, Pinhead? You? I'm, I'm going to cut off all your childhood fingers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this film is, in its own way, it doesn't connect to any of the Hellraiser films that come after or any of the ones that come before. I mean, Hellraiser 1 leads directly into Hellraiser 2. Hellraiser 2 with the Pillar of Souls leads directly into 3. 3 leads into 4 with the box and the concrete and the the architecture that is box-themed. But after 4, between 4 and 5, other than Pinhead himself, there's virtually nothing connecting these two films. And I will reiterate my previous point I made in 4 with... um, we get introduced to these twins who become Cenobites, and that has carried on into this film, except it's not those twins. It's uh, a completely different couple of twins, uh, the Stitch twins. But the, the, the theme of having twins has, has carried over. Well, we do have one other little reference. There's a bit where 
they, they only tell us this at about an hour into the movie, an hour into an 83-minute movie or so. They make casual reference to how, oh, by the way, the engineering the engineer was killing people back in the 1980s, which I assume is a reference to the Hellraiser films coming out in the 80s, the old ones. But at the same time, you're like, well, why is this information being withheld from the audience? That would probably make this film have a bit more of a sense of urgency about it than it currently does, especially as the audience already know it's Pinhead. Yeah. I also want to add just quickly, just to finish off the twin point I was making, that uh, the twins in Hellraiser 4 were designed after Sock and Bushkin. And that's the two masks that are associated with theatre. See, because there's the two gold masks with the reef around them, and you've got uh, one of them smiling and one of them sad. And the Hellraiser twins and Hellraiser 4 had that, whereas the Stitch twins don't have that. But they're also not stitched to each other either, so they're completely separated. Yeah, we're going to try to go down a bit of a sexier route, I think, with this one here. Uh, yeah, yeah, it, it uh, looks like it, yeah. I feel it is kind of bringing it back to the original themes of the Hellraiser films, whereas they were kind of forgotten in the previous one. Here, this is a man who likes his vices. And although it's not quite as extreme as, say, Frank, for example, who obviously goes to the ends of the earth to get what he wants, it's... It's the Cenobites coming after a man who, you know, he he he's a bad man. He goes elsewhere to get his pleasures and does other things that, you know, is considered reprehensible to to get his thrills. And I suppose once he's used the puzzle box, that's it. Uh, I, I subscribe to what you were saying about the moment we see him play with that. That's it. That's the constant cycle he's in he's in his own hell and it's looping and looping because that makes it a bit better overall I suppose. <laughs> uh, but yeah i think it, it definitely comes back to the original themes of people getting their pleasures and uh, punished for it basically uh, jim what did you think of the cenobites in this one compared to the cenobites from the last one uh that the feels a, a bit more stripped down in this one uh, obviously, both physically and <laughs> metaphorically. <laughs> um, I I did get a lot of Silent Hill vibes. Now, this came out a year or two after the original game. But the not only in terms of the costume and makeup design for the Cenobites, but just a few beats here and there in the sound design as well, such as phone calls, VHS tape even some beats in the music occasionally. I just It just screamed Silent Hill at me. Um, and in particular, the Cenobite that ends up being Joseph, as, as we find out at, at the end. Mm. Um, I, I just, yeah, it really came across to me. I I'd played that game and thought, oh yeah, this would make a good film, you know? <laughs> So if this one's Silent Hill, what, do, what, what about the Cenobites in Part 4? Do they remind you of anything? Oh, Mortal Kombat, definitely. <laughs> especially uh, Angelique. She had, like, uh, where her hair would be. It kind of looked like pipes or something. It just reminded me of maybe <laughs> Cable or one of those. Yeah, it just it, all of them scream 90s video games. So I've got such a petty point here about this to amuse me. 
I liked that Joseph's mum called him by his full name during the flashback <laughs> sequence. I remember that. Uh, that bit at the end, though, when we've got them all coming together, there's two really bad bits here. We have the way the child self comes in, transitional spin, and then yeah, the way that Pinhead bad. enters with this weird CGI face switch. And then he becomes this very bright, slightly happy-looking uh, Pinhead. That, look, that sucked, that arrival, which is weird, because the rest of the film looked yeah. amazing. There's... You wouldn't look at that and go, Scott Derrickson's going to make some great CGI films <laughs> later. If I had to guess, he'd made a number of, I would say, great transitions in that film. I think to avoid directorial repetition, he went for something else. Now, the spin is terrible. The CGI reveal of Pinhead is is terrible. It's It's almost comedic watching the pins popping out of his head. It, it's this is a balloon bursting in reverse. Um, so it's that was not great at all. I want to issue a slight correction as I'm, I'm just looking at the thing and I've realised that I've been naming the twins wrong. They're not the Stitch twins. The Stitch twins appear in Hellraiser ten. The twins in five are actually the Wire twins. Wire so it's twins. The Wire twins are seeing here. Stitch twins we won't see for a while. But there's two different sets of twins. So as I say, there are. The twins from Hellraiser 4 did start a trend that uh, lasted the length of the series, unlike Angelique. Um, my interpretation of this film is that Pinhead is actually turning Joseph Thorne into a Cenobite. And the that creature that we see with just the mouth and the long black tongue that's burning off the fingerprints, that, that is what he's going to become. I think that's a cool idea. I don't know if it's what's intended, although it does make a film more interesting if it is. But again, it just comes back to this issue that I just don't think he's enough of a cunt to warrant that. I think, <laughs> I think with regards to that as a kind of punishment, because the films are sort of maybe defying space and time a little bit here. You know, he is getting caught into a loop. So for him living this life over and over again, maybe that's actually, maybe all this is actually happening in the space of just a few minutes. But for him, it's dragged out for potentially centuries. And that's mm -hmm. maybe the torment. Because we've seen that uh, Pinhead's able to just make new Cenobites at will. Like he was able to make Camcorder Guy and uh, CDs Guy yeah. back in yeah. number three. And uh, Cigarette Women back in number three. So I, I, I like that. I think that could, that could be canon. And I think it makes the film uh, more enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a good theory. Um, personally, for me, this was Pinhead's most underwhelming appearance so far. Yeah. Um, I liked it better when he was James Remar's psychiatrist. But as I mentioned in the previous film, the moment Pinhead comes on the screen, it's elevated. I got that same feeling when the psychiatrist was introduced. Yeah. He just was a, another level above everyone else in that film. And then once he transitioned to Pinhead, it was just a little underwhelming after that. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't given his meatiest lines of dialogue in this film. I, I will agree with that. Yeah, Clive Barker didn't like this film very much. Uh, I'll tell you what he said about it, because it's, it's relevant to this. He goes, I really hate the way Pinhead's been treated in this film. It depressed me. It's upset me on behalf of Doug, on behalf of myself, and on behalf of the people who love these movies. I thought it was disrespectful, and I felt as though he'd been tagged on just because he wanted to call it a Hellraiser movie. But it didn't feel like a Hellraiser movie. It felt opportunistic to me. 
So this is one of the films that he's spoken out against. He's spoken out against two films. I, I think there's only two that he's mentioned. And this was one that he's openly said he just really didn't like. He said it's really terrible and it's shockingly bad and should never have been made. <laughs> and while I think he's being a little bit harsh, particularly as, to be honest, um, Jim, after the next episode, you may well be remembering this as a golden age. <laughs> the good old days when we were watching Hellraiser Inferno. I hope you're not... Uh, regretting agreeing to do this miniseries <laughs> but uh we've got a lot to say about these next films i can tell you uh, there are some some of the cool bits one of the cool bit i want to mention is the bit where tony's hurling crucifixes at him and one of them gets stuck in him i thought that was a really cool effect oh and were those some knives because he, he oh he, I, uh, thought they were nice, I thought they were nice with crosses on them well they could be because mm. I actually quite like that twist where in that sequence everything literally comes back to bite uh, Joseph Thorne in the ass and he's got his partner there with like a bunch of knives behind him and just reaches back pulls out a knife and throws it at him and he's just because he's loaded with so many knives in the back that he just keeps throwing them at oh, Joseph stabbed Thorne. in I the back yeah, yeah. yeah. I see. all the knives that he put there uh, you know just, I love that sequence that went over my head that's, that's, <laughs> quite, that's quite clever but, well oh. you know he was mentioning how much he trusted him at that point as well <laughs> <laughs> yeah what I liked as well I mean I made this comment before and I just feel it's appropriate now so in for instance, I'll, I'll make the Game of Thrones reference, you know what I'm talking about. In season one of Game of Thrones, it takes like a month of riding horseback to get from south of Westeros to north of Westeros. By season seven and eight, everyone's effectively fast traveling to wherever they need to be, as though it's a video game like Skyrim or something like that. Fast travel, fast travel. In the third act, forever Joseph Thorne needs to be. He simply opens a door and there he is. Yeah, that in fucked that me setting. off. Just like going, you got to return back to the start. So you imagine he's going to ride out to his childhood home. But no, he just opens a door and he ends up there. It's like uh, when we were doing episode two, talking about Silent Hill Revelation, the way that there's a whole mo- whole uh, road movie-like aspect at one point of driving to Silent mm. Hill, and then Silent Hill just shows up outside the hotel door at one point. You're like, why didn't they just do this at the beginning? Mm. Uh, well, maybe you leveled up, seems we're talking about video games and not the fast <laughs> travel perk. Oh, this reminds me, by the way, I was looking up uh, The Last Blockbuster. Apparently The Last Blockbuster is about to get its own Netflix production. There is one, it's in uh, Central Oregon, the place I believe it's called Bend. And uh, that's where the last blockbuster in the world is. And it's about to get its own comedy series. So yay, on Netflix. Netflix, rubbing it in their face. They're like, ah, we beat you guys. And now we're making a a, a comedy about you and how sad it is you still (laughs) exist. Blockbuster and uh, Love Film. Love Film was the kind of arrival, right? Where you'd order uh, DVDs and mail. I think that was Amazon who then bought that over and turned it into Prime. Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. Mm. Yeah, I remember renting quite a lot through Love Film, which I believe was the business model of Netflix in the US originally. They did the whole mail order rentals, mm. um, and then it took off over here as a solely streaming site. The rest is history, as I say. I remember mm-hmm. when I first encountered YouTube, I was uh, I was in first year at uni, so this would be, what, 2005, and a friend of mine was going, David, check out this website, YouTube. And then he showed me YouTube, where the first video I ever watched was Radiohead doing a cover version of the theme tune for The Spy Who Loved Me. And it's a really good cover version. <laughs> Nobody does it better. 
Well, except for uh, except for the person who did that song originally. But hey, uh, anyway, uh, so Hellraiser Inferno. I don't want to turn this into one of those podcasts where people just speak shite about nothing. Let's stick to the movies. <laughs> yeah. uh, has anyone, have either of you guys got other big pluses or big minuses you want to bring in? Um, looks like the fourth. There is a lot we've said against it, but I can't say it's a terrible film. It does lack uh, a protagonist you you know that you can feel sympathetic towards, and it does maybe drag on a bit too much in terms of the police procedural areas. But overall, it entertained me. So you know, it's done its job. Alistair, what about yourself? Any other points you want to bring in? Not really. I think of. I think I feel I've satisfied uh, what. Uh, Hellraiser Inferno has earned for me. It, uh, I liked it. It was a good change in direction for the series. And it's one that opens up possibilities and because it, it redefined what a Hellraiser movie could be. So where does the series go from here? Only podcasts will tell. You know, <laughs> before we started recording this, I was telling Emma, I was like, talking about Hellraiser 4 and 5, this will probably take us about an hour. Um, we've currently been going for two, so this is probably the most in-depth review of Hellraiser Inferno anywhere on the internet. I believe <laughs> it. Let's go to star ratings. So now that we've talked about this film, I was originally going to give this two and a half. And you know what? Actually, no, fuck it. I'm going to stick with two and a half. I think there's, there's some virtues about it. It's just simply not a very interesting experience for most of the first two thirds of it. And I thought when it turns good, the story just doesn't function because mm. there's no reason for this to be happening to this guy. Yeah, he's a dick, but but I don't buy that he'd that Pinhead would choose to torture him for the rest of his life based on him being a bit of a dick. Yeah, I'm gonna give this two and a half. What about yourself, Alistair? I'll give it a three. I know that this film I don't think it's rates very highly in the fandom. It's uh, certainly not in anyone's top five Hellraiser film, but <laughs> very first time I watched it, I really enjoyed it. And I still do, despite its flaws, of which there are many. I, I, I'm at the point now as a, I suppose, a Hellraiser fan where I can sit down and watch a Hellraiser film. It's like watching an episode of Friends. Like, you know, the characters, <laughs> it's, it's that sort of comfort watch. And I'll give it a three. I'll give it a three. You know, Ross is going to be sitting there absolutely raging. We're like, yeah, this is not enter anyone's top five. He's like, this isn't my top three. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I think, he, I, I think I said I would fight Hellraiser Inferno's corner for him. <laughs> I also think I have to be objective of the film as well and, and what we actually have. And I, I mean, as I say, I, there is stuff I do enjoy in this film, but it's, it's not a four-star film. It's definitely not a five-star film. Is it is it close to a three and a half? Like, is this better or worse than part four for you? No, no, we're now we're splitting hairs here. Uh, mm-hmm. Four has got its own flaws, as as we've already sort of discussed. Um, for me, the the flaws with four are the conceptual ones of it's answering questions not only that I didn't ask but I didn't want answered. Mm-hmm. Five for me beautifully doesn't do any of that. It, it presents Pinhead as he was in the, well, not as he was in the first film, but what I mean by that is in the first film, Pinhead and the Cenobites are presented as an absolute. You just open the box, here they are, bad stuff's going to happen. 
five follows that formula as well. It's a it's a back to basics film. Jim, what's your star rating for this one? I've got, I've got to agree on that one. Whereas part four not only tried to create a whole new law, it disregarded what had been established previously. Whereas this brings it back around, forgets all of that nonsense from the previous film and just goes back to what we know. And yeah, I did struggle engaging with the characters and there, there were a, a few moments that, you know, just left me in disbelief. But overall, I would give it a free um, nowhere near as good as the original three films but still an entertaining film but keep in mind the uh, orders and ratings we're giving all of these because during the last week our list will be each of us giving our own top 10 however we have a different list prepared for this week so let's go to that list time i am looking up a list here of clive barker adaptations so i'm on screenrant.com who do a number of these lists and they've got the five best and five worst clive barker movies according to imdb so what movies do you reckon are gonna make this list clive barker horror films well notoriously nightbreed's considered a disaster isn't it so i'm gonna say that's on the worst list nightbreed is not a disaster i think that's an awesome movie i I never said it was i'm just saying you know critically it's never been considered a great film so it is on the list but it's actually one of the best ones on the list fair enough Mm. whatever ones we reckon might be there rawhead rex Rawhead Rex, okay. Uh, yes, it is on this list. Do you reckon I'm guessing, be... no, it's in the worst. <laughs> I remember you showed me the design for the original Rawhead Rex once. It looked pretty cool. It's, um, yeah, the what Clive Barker had in his head and the story-wise was adapted um, inexpertly, shall we say. And... I think there was um, an interpretation that he was wanting to get across to the audience that did not translate well at all. Uh, so visually, the creature Rawhead Rex was nothing like what came out in the... I think he published a comic book afterwards due to his disappointment with uh, the film that came out. And also, incidentally, by the way, his, Clive Barker's disappointment with Rawhead Rex is why he wanted to personally direct the Hellraiser. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Raw, Rawhead Rex. I watched it quite recently. I thought it was pretty shit. I thought the monster, <laughs> so much of the problems with the monster's look. You gotta be scared of the monster. If you can't make the monster look good, you keep it in the shadows. Mm. Uh, what else do we reckon's on there? There's a really obvious best that, ne- that neither of you have said yet. Well, isn't Hellraiser Man? Yeah, Candyman's the one. Oh, and Hellraiser's also in there. <laughs> so yeah, uh, Candyman, of course, based upon one of his uh, short stories, which was set in Liverpool, but then transported across to the States for that uh, wonderful movie. Any others? Is there any Hellraiser films we think might make the worst list? 
we've got a lot of options there if they're all considered <laughs> adaptations. There are more than one Hellraiser. Right, I'll, uh, let's start going through this for, firstly. Okay, so on one of the best, so one of the five best, this is a movie from 2008. It stars Vinnie Jones as the villain, and it takes place on subways. What Midnight. film am I talking about? Midnight, Midnight Meat Train. Meat Train. Yeah, Midnight <laughs> Meat Train. I quite enjoyed Midnight Meat Train. It was cool. You got the uh, the butcher who you got all those uh, those subway cars were just full of like dangling bits of body. I really enjoyed it. There's a brilliant commentary on that on the DVD where Clive Barker, when you see him with the making of Hellraiser, very well spoken. And then you hear the commentary on Midnight Meat Train, he's like, ah, like it's like Shane McGowan style. Like those cigarettes have not been good to him. Midnight Meat Train number five. Okay, what what is coming in as one of the worst? This is an anthology film from 2009. I want to say Books of Blood. Book, yeah, Books of Blood, or Book of Blood, as this is uh, referred to. Okay. In fact, actually, that means, that means, yeah, this is actually another film based on the stories from the Books of Blood. So this is not the original film of Books of Blood. Then we come along to another one of the best ones. It is a Hellraiser sequel that we have already covered. What do we reckon? Two. Yes. Hell, Hellbound Hellraiser Part 2 is the next on the best list. So that'll be the fourth best. Next up, one of the worst. This is another sequel. It's not a sequel to Hellraiser. And it's a sequel to one of the other best ones. What the fuck am I talking about? Uh, I'm guessing it's Candyman 3. This is Candyman. I think it's the second one. It's Farewell to the Flesh. Is that the second uh, one? Yeah, that's that's the second one, yeah. I never saw this film. Is it any good, Jim? I assume it's one of the worst. I assume um, it's probably not. Well, I watched that probably 20-odd years ago on tape, uh, coincidentally rented. I enjoyed it at the time. It was nowhere near as terrifying as the original which i which left me scarred for a good few years after first mm. seeing that but you know for a slasher i thought it was pretty decent at the time i was probably in my late teens yeah, it's nowhere near as bad as it's made out to be you know judging by uh let's see when this list was made because i'm wondering if the Candyman remake yeah this list was from 2020 so i'm wondering if the Candyman remake scored higher than midnight meat train because midnight meat train on imdb scored 6.1 i could imagine the Candyman remake knocking it off now number six so this is the third best this is nightbreed nightbreed i've only ever seen the cabal cut which is the extended cut but I thought this was a really good film. For some of the reasons that Nicholas Vince went into in the last podcast, it's a, it's a pretty powerful horror film in its own way. The kind of message of it here, where the monsters are the good guys, I thought was really cool. And uh, there's some really good creature designs in this. There's a hell of a lot of lore. If anything, you could have made a franchise out of this, and I think it probably would have naturally expanded in a way that Hellraiser perhaps doesn't uh, after the third entry. So, uh, yeah, uh, neither of you guys have seen Nightbreed, no? Um, I might have seen it years and years ago, but I can't remember. But I'm pretty sure I've got it on my uh, Sky Planner to watch, so <laughs> I might have to check that out soon. Good stuff. I'm afraid I've not seen it. Uh, so it will be something I'll have to check out. Maybe check it out for before uh, our next podcast. Hmm. Well, number five, so we're going back to the worst list here. The third worst is Rawhead Rex. 
with 5.3 on IMDb. So, uh, of course, Barker wrote, wrote the uh, screenplay, but it just didn't do his vision justice. Uh, with probably one of the silliest creature designs I can think of. It just looks like a gigantic penis. Then we come to best. So the second best is Candyman, which we mentioned before. I think Candyman is such an effective movie. It's a really creepy concept. The score is just beautiful. Some of, some of Philip Glass's finest composition music for movies. And the sort of the social message of the whole thing about neglected communities creating their own structures, creating their own morality. It's done in a way that doesn't shove the message down your throat. You know, it's not a message first movie. The message is finally integrated into the character journey here, which is something I wouldn't necessarily say about the remake. And I think that where the remake also suffered was just uh, in the comparison, I don't think the remake built up a third act particularly convincingly. Whereas with Candyman, it just builds and it builds and it builds. And it's, I think it's one of the best movies of that decade. Uh, yeah, you guys yeah. Just, Com- yeah, completely agree with that. Um, uh, obviously, I saw Candyman at a young age and, you know, it was terrifying. The, the gore, the, the, the monster was horrifying for a young lad to see. But as you get older and you realize the subtext and the themes of the film, it's a completely different kind of horror. And it really gets under your skin. And that was conveyed a lot less subtly in the latest one. And I I agree, its third act does kind of just come out of nowhere. But I still enjoyed the more recent adaptation of Candy Mano's should I say sequel mm. in a sense. Um, but yeah, that original is unbeatable. I mean, I do think with the Candyman, uh, yeah, let's fucking call it a sequel. Now I had some issues with it. I also did think it was a really strong film for the first two thirds or so. And even at the end, we got some really quite cool iconography. It was a very timely bit towards the end as well. So I think I had a lot going for it. And you know what? I mean, 2021 has not been a wonderful year. Maybe it will end up making my end of year list. I haven't really decided. Hey, Alistair, you're a Candyman fan, right? You know, sir, I've got a confession to make. I've not seen any of them. Holy fuck! Okay, well, we're doing that for a future episode. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, sign me up. Uh, right. And we come to number uh, three. So this is the second worst with 4.2. I don't know this movie, but apparently it's Clive Barker's first screenplay. It's called Underworld from 1985. Mm, no. Not ringing any bells. The only underworld I know is uh, starring Kate Beckinsale. Apparently this one, a a sex worker who seems to be named Fearful, if I'm believing this. Really? It's it's the F in Fearful, PH. Well, she's been uh, kidnapped by a a scientist, Dr. Savory. Uh, What? Yeah, what if a woman's... Oh, 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 you know what? I completely misread this sentence. I'll chop chop this bit out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it's but to be fair this should not be the start of a new paragraph fearful the sex worker has been kidnapped by the scientist Dr. Savory one of the woman's clients hires a man to track her down but uh, if her name was fearful that would have been better but anyway Underworld so the uh, best one is the first Hellraiser film with a total of this is still quite low 7 out of 10 on IMDb to be fair, though, horror films regularly underperform in IMDb, and uh, I've never quite got why. 
Uh, what do you guys reckon is the uh, what do you reckon is the worst of the Clive Barker films? I'm just going to go out on a limb and say it's another one of the Hellraiser adaptations. Oh, well, it could be. It could be. I'm fearful of the answer. <laughs> uh, Alistair, what Hellraiser film do you reckon IMDb has put last? I'll tell you, it's got <sighs> 2.7 out of 10. I kind of tempted to lean toward Revelations on that yes. one. Yes, Hellraiser Revelations yeah. is, according to IMDb, the worst film adapted from Clive Barker's work. It's not my least favourite of him. We'll come to that later on. But uh, yeah, uh, that's one of the ones that Clive Barker has also spoken out against. I believe he said that he shat out better works than Hellraiser <laughs> Revelations. <laughs> he did say that, yes. So uh, there we have it, folks. This is probably the most in-depth discussion of of uh, parts four and five of Hellraiser anywhere on the internet. And uh I personally cannot wait till we do six, seven, and eight. Jim, are you are you looking forward to six, seven, and eight for the first time? I am actually. Despite certain parts of the last film that we watched, uh, part five, not doing it for me. There was times whilst that film was still going, I was sat there thinking, "Yeah, I'm actually looking forward to seeing what comes after this." So you know, I know they're notoriously not very good, but I'm looking forward to seeing what comes next. Well, Alistair mentioned earlier the way that horror films we stop using numbers in the titles, and uh, this, of course, happens with Inferno. Part six is a wee preview. It's called Hellseeker. I have absolutely no I- idea why they chose to call it that. Then we have <laughs> Deader, and then Hellworld. So, folks, the next show is going to be a goodie. Thank you very much, everyone, and good night. See ya. Audio.